If you've read the uh, Old Testament and the history of the Jews as they came out of Egypt on their way to the Promised Land, it's kind of an interesting history with uh, some very unusual stories. And there's a repeating pattern, if you recall, as they're going through the wilderness. First of all, they, res- they refused to go into the Promised Land. They were afraid of the giants, even though God had done all these incredible miracles. <coughs> so the Lord basically said um, that he would make them do about 40, la- 40 years worth of laps around Mount Sinai. And so they spent a lot of time in the wilderness. And as they were going through the wilderness, uh, the repeating pattern that just happened over and over again was that they would get upset about something. They would complain. They would grumble against the Lord. Um, This is after, by the way, God had showed them great uh, grace. At one point in time, in fact, they disobeyed to the point, grumbled to the point. He said, I'm done with these people. They worship this golden calf. I just want to be done with them. And he was going to destroy them, but Moses interceded. And then they complained about the fact that they didn't have uh, food or water. He sent manna, uh, which means in the Hebrew, what is it? But it was some pretty good stuff. Anyway, he would provide them, but they would continue to complain. But in Numbers 21, there's this really just interesting paragraph where they're wandering through and, and they're, they're getting complaining again. And they start saying, you know, we're so tired of this worthless food. And this is the manna that God was providing to keep them alive. So, in judgment, God sent poisonous snakes among the people. The Bible says he called them fiery serpents. And they bit the people, and it says many of the people died. That's God's judgment. I don't know about you, but that was, what a horrible way to be judged if you're people. Any of you saw the movie Indiana Jones? All those slithering snakes. People just tend to have a universal fear of snakes, don't they? And maybe some of you don't, but I bet most of you do. But it must have been a pretty scary time when these serpents were sent among the people. Now, most scholars that have studied that era and that time say that these snakes were probably a variety of poisonous snake called a saw-scaled viper, which are common in Egypt, northern Egypt, and the Middle East. And they say these are very aggressive kinds of snakes. They're not large snakes necessarily, but they're very aggressive. And their poison is very potent. In fact, in regions where they dwell, like in the desert where the Jews were at that time, more people are killed even today by saw-scaled vipers than all of the other poisonous snakes in that part of the world combined. They're aggressive snakes. In other words, they even have this unique characteristic that when they strike, they strike so hard that they literally throw themselves forward toward whatever they're striking at. So these are very dangerous snakes. And there's a very high mortality rate. And God sent these serpents among the people. And finally, the people um, said to Moses, we've sinned. Okay. (laughs) Ask God to back off, you know, to take the snakes away or whatever. So the people ultimately repented and God provided a very unusual cure. Now you think about this. People are dying of snake bite all over. What will you tend to do? God, what do we do, God? Well, go gather some of these special herbs and apply to the wound, you know. Or maybe set up healing lines for Moses, right? And uh, the Lord said, no, just get a pole, make a copy of a snake, a bronze snake, and put it up on the pole. And everyone that looks at the snake, uh, or this bronze snake, is going to live. 
I don't know about you, Moses probably said, run that by me one more time. It just doesn't, it, it's, it's too simple. God, you mean just simply looking at that snake, people are going to be cured of the snake bite. And that's exactly what happened. God, or Moses made this bronze snake, put it up on the pole, and anyone that was bitten that looked at the bronze snake was cured. Now, that story illustrates a very important teaching that Jesus gave us in John chapter 3. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn there. John chapter 3. We'll come back to that story in just a little bit, as you'll see. I'll, I'll just let you sit today, okay? And I'll read this to you, but you can follow along in the Gospel of John chapter 3. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of this. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Well, he was partly right, didn't he? He said, we know you're a teacher come from God. At this time, he didn't know that it was God come as a teacher. Now, Jesus answered him, truly, truly. King James would say, verily, verily. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one or he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, these are simple truths, but they're deep truths. We pray that you'd open up our hearts and our minds to receive your word this morning, that it might penetrate our hearts, Lord, and um, bring the effect that only you, your spirit, your word can have upon the human heart this morning. Be pleased, O Lord, to dwell among us today, to give us life that comes from Jesus Christ, because he is life and light. And we thank you for that. And we pray that these truths might so impress upon us and inspire us that when opportunities arrive, we can share them with others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me just share a few things of what this passage, which is probably a pretty familiar passage to most of you, uh, what it illustrates. First of all, it illustrates the futility of human effort. And this is illustrated by this guy, Nicodemus. This is an unusual guy. This Nicodemus guy, he, he seemed to have it all. I mean, you think about this. He was extraordinary. Uh, he was a very prosperous man, by the way, because in verse 19 later in the line, uh, when Jesus dies on the cross, 
it says that uh, a wealthy man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came to get Jesus' body. And the Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, sticky stuff, herbs that they, they used to embalm people in a manner of speaking with. They would take the bodies and they would wrap linen around the body and in amongst the linen cloth they would put aloes and myrrh, the fragrance and the sticky stuff to form a kind of a cocoon. And it says Nicodemus brought, and this is expensive stuff, Nicodemus brings 75 pounds to help embalm the body of Jesus Christ. He was a wealthy man. So he was prosperous, but also he was a very, he was a very pious individual. Because it says here, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This guy was very religious, religiously devoted. He was a Pharisee. Pharisee meant separated one. There were 6,000 of them in Israel at this time. They were the most religiously devoted people of all, the Pharisees. It was, these, guys, these guys would put me to shame. And you too, I'm sure. Uh, a man would enter the brotherhood of the Pharisees by pledging to spend all his life observing every detail of the scribal law. And what happened was, back in those days, they had taken the great principles of the Mosaic law. Old Testament law, and had made them into detailed practices. Now there's a series of books in uh, Jewish uh, history called the Mishnah, still is. Mishnah was the codified scribal law. And then you have the Talmud, which is the, like the commentary, the explanatory commentary to the Mishnah. See, you got, you got these, these Old Testament laws like um, Ten Commandments, you know, don't work on the Sabbath. Okay, what does that mean? Well, you're not supposed to work at your career. That's work. Well, what else is work? Well, gee, we got to think about what, what does it mean? What, what is work now? And so they set up, they, they made application of these principles into all these little detailed do's and don'ts. And so, for instance, 24 chapters of the Mishnah deals with Sabbath regulations what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. 24 chapters. For instance, uh, you read in the New Testament, they went a Sabbath's day journey. What's that? No more than a thousand yards. That's how far you can walk on the Sabbath. Sabbath's day's journey if you're a religious holy guy. A thousand yards. It's like a third of a mile. That's, uh, beyond that, it's work. Okay? Um, tying knots. What kind of knot can you tie? I suppose there were some knots maybe you could tie, but most of the time that's, that's work, see? I mean, you wouldn't believe the eensy-weensy detailed regulations. And these guys, the Pharisees, were the ones that pledged themselves to keep them. So the scribes were the guys that, that worked out all these regulations. The Pharisees were the guys that says, we're going to do them. And they were devoted. Man, they dedicated their lives to carry him out. So this guy, Nicodemus, he was prosperous, pious, powerful. I'm using P's here, can you tell? How do I know he's powerful? Because it says he's a member of the Jewish ruling, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. The ruling body of the Jews. Seventy people. So he was a powerful individual. 
pious, prosperous, powerful, prestigious too. How do I know that? Look at what Jesus says to him. Verse um, 10. Jesus answered him. He's got these questions. Jesus says, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things? Did you catch that? The definite article, the word the. In other words, this guy knew the Scriptures better than anyone. He was the Bible answer man among the Jews of that day. He was the rabbi of rabbis. If you had a question on Scripture, this, that, that's your go-to guy. He was not a teacher in Israel. He was not a great teacher in Israel. Jesus says he was the teacher of Israel. He surpassed them all. This guy knew it all. I mean, I think every Jewish mother probably wished her little boy would become a Nicodemus. There goes Nicodemus. I want you to be just like him when you grow up. I don't know. So he's powerful, prestigious, he's prosperous. The guy's got it all, okay? Powerful individual. And, and at the same time, he's got a seeking heart. Now this is amazing here. Because in verse 2 it says, this guy came by night to Jesus. Says to him, Rabbi, we know that your teacher come from God, for nobody can do the things that you do unless God were with him. He'd seen the miracles of Jesus Christ. It's amazing, though, that this powerful man, one of the most powerful, knowledgeable, prestigious guys in all of Israel, comes to Jesus Christ. I mean, not, not many people even get that far, do they, today? Most people are so spiritually apathetic, they don't even want to investigate Jesus Christ. I think people that truly, with an open heart and open mind, investigate the claims of Jesus Christ and investigate all of the evidence surrounding the resurrection would be forced to conclude this is the Son of God. But most people don't even get that far. But here's a guy, comes to Jesus at night, one of the most powerful men in Israel, and he's coming with a respectful, humble attitude. He came at night. Why did he come at night? Well, some people say he came at night because he didn't want any of his peers to see him. Maybe that's true. I don't know. I'm inclined to think that maybe he thought coming to Jesus privately at night, nobody else around, I got some questions. The man that knows it all has some questions. He wanted a private conversation with Jesus Christ and he calls Jesus Rabbi. (laughs) The Rabbi of Rabbis of Israel is calling Jesus Rabbi. Comes to Jesus at night. So he was prosperous and pious, powerful, prestigious, but apparently he lacked peace. And he's got some questions. He wants to know. He has a seeking heart. And also he believed in Christ. Now you have to be careful here. Look at verse 2. He says, we know, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He said, hey, I know God's with you. Besides all of this, Nicodemus believed that Jesus was from God. Wow. Wow. Now, can you imagine today somebody like that come in our church? Sign him up. This, this is a hot prospect, folks. I mean, Nicodemus, we're going to take you on tour and we're going to let you give your testimony all over the place, okay? <laughs> he not only has a seeking heart, he just says that he believes that 
Jesus comes from God. If anybody could make it to heaven on sincere human effort, this is the guy. That's what I want to get through to you this morning. If, if there was anybody in the world at that time that could get into heaven by being religious, by doing every legal, law, religious precept and commandment you can think about, this guy would be the first one there. And yet, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, Nicodemus, he cuts through all the smoke screen here that Nicodemus says, and he goes right for the jugular, and he says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Now, I don't know about you, but that must have been a shock. In other words, Nicodemus, all of your efforts, your unsurpassed knowledge, devotion, meticulous obedience to all of these commandments, all of your religious devotion, you still lack something. You're still not there. You need to be born again. I don't know about you, but it should kind of shock you and I, or most people that think about devotion and religion. And so let's look at this thing called the being born again or the new birth. Look at verse 3. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus begins by saying, truly, truly. Uh, that was, if you're going to preface anything you say uh, to make it an absolutely serious statement, that's what you would do. Truly. Truly. Twice. No option here. This, this is a must-do. Okay, and he says you cannot, except for being born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. There is an impossibility of entering heaven unless there is such a radical change in your inner life that it could only be described as new birth. Did you get that? Nicodemus, all religious people, it's still impossible to enter heaven unless you have such a radical change in your heart, in your inner person, that it could only be described as being born again. First Peter chapter 1, 23, Peter says to the church, to the Christians he's writing to, he says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. Let me, let's just talk about this thing about being born again. Well, first of all, exactly what does it mean? Um, it has three different meanings involved in this term, in this Greek word about being born again. First of all, it uh, means born again. In other words, like being born a second time, okay? It also has the idea of being born from above. Being born in a sense that this birth comes from God. Okay? Being born again, being born from above, and then also the aspect of born from the beginning. From the very start, as it were. Uh, in other words, not halfway through something, but completely, radically. Born from above, born again, born from the beginning. And then Jesus goes on to say, um, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I always say you, you must be born again. Now Jesus also goes on to talk about being born of water. Did you catch that? Um, Trying to look at the verse here. The wind blows 
So does everybody born of the Spirit. I'm not putting my finger on the verse here. Oh, verse 5, excuse me. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It's a reference, first of all, to physical birth, born of water. You and I and and every other person here has been born of water. We were born with amniotic fluid, okay? That's born of water, just typical physical human birth. Born of the Spirit is something else. Water tends to to mean in, in the Scriptures cleansing. Spirit has to do with empowerment. This is talking about a transformation that involves both cleansing and empowerment. Born of water, human birth, born of the Spirit, something else. Born of power, change. And, and then Jesus said this, this birth is difficult to grasp. We see this alluded to twice because Nicodemus says, how can a man be born again when he's old? You know, can he climb into his mother's womb a second time and be born again? Nicodemus, this, this doesn't compute. And th- th- then again in, um, in verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Spiritual birth is hard to understand. It's hard for the mind to grasp because knowledge of Scripture is one thing. Understanding is another thing. Did you get that? Nicodemus was the most knowledgeable man in Israel at that time. But he can't understand this idea of a second birth. Why couldn't he understand? Look at verse 11. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we've seen, but you, and the word there is in plural, not just you, Nicodemus, but y'all. You, Nicodemus, you, the other Pharisees and the scribes and all the people that are resisting his message. He says, y'all do not receive our testimony. It's a willful thing. You don't understand because you're not willing to receive. Like the old song says, there's none so blind as him who what? Will not see. They refuse to see. And then Jesus goes on to say, look, he's he's saying, I'm the only one that really understands and knows these things because I come from heaven. Verse 12, he says, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? If you can't understand stuff down here, how can you understand heavenly, eternal stuff. He says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is essentially saying he is the authority on spiritual matters. Do you realize that back in this time there were stories about people that supposedly went to heaven and came back again? Just like there are stories today of people who claim that they've gone to heaven, died and gone to heaven and come back again? Well, that's one thing. What they say is not authoritative. Take it with a grain of salt, people. I'm not saying that it's all lies. I'm not saying it can happen. But there's a big difference between somebody that claims to go to heaven coming back down and somebody that actually from all eternity has dwelt in heaven, is part of heaven, and comes down. That's the kind of authority Jesus has in speaking on eternal issues. Difficult for the human mind to grasp, okay? But also this thing about being born again is an act of God. The verb born again here is passive. Passive tense. What does that mean? Passive means it's not something that I do. It's something that's done to me. It's like me saying, 
the difference between go hit the ball or saying go be hit by the ball. See, one is something I do, I'm responsible for, it's an action. The other is I'm passive, the ball hits me. Well, in the same way, I didn't decide to be born. I didn't decide when to be born. Neither did you. <laughs> we were passive in that sense. But God is sovereign. God is the one who elects who, when, how, and why we're born again. It's God's responsibility. He does it to us. 1 Peter 1.3, good verse for this, says, according to His great mercy, He has caused us. I didn't do it, no. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And then down in verse 13 in this chapter, Jesus says, or the scripture says, to all who received him, chapter 1, verse 13, to all who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, that would be kind of a human birth, nor of the will of flesh, it's not my idea, my decision, nor of the will of man, somebody else can't do it to me, but born of God. God is sovereign over the new birth. It's an act of God. And it's mysterious because in verse 8 says, you know the wind, what does the wind do? Well, you, wind, you hear its sound, you see what it does, but you can't tell where it's going or where it comes from. That's what it's like in being born again. You can't control the wind. You can't control its coming and going. The wind has a mind of its own, a will of its own. We don't do anything about it. But that's the same thing about the spiritual birth. Sovereign act of God. So what's a person to do? Jesus gives us this illustration as to what our responsibility is. Verse 14. And we come back to the story I started with. Jesus references that story. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Jesus uses an analogy regarding the serpent on the pole and himself, okay? See, back in the day of Moses, when they were going through the wilderness, the problem really wasn't the snakes. The problem was the sin of the people. I remember years ago hearing a story by Paul Harvey. Remember the radio announcer? He always had these interesting stories. Some guy in California got bit by his pet baby rattlesnake. He was holding his rattle. This, this is true. He tried to kiss just this cute little rattlesnake. He tried to kiss his pet baby rattlesnake. The thing bit him on the lip. I don't know if he died. I can't remember the story. <laughs> but it's a good illustration because sin seems attractive. That's why it's so popular. America's favorite pastime, right? Sin seems attractive but it bites and it infects us with a deadly poison. So the problem is not necessarily the sins we do, the problem is the attitude behind them and that's what God judged these people for. 
And Jesus said, just like Moses lifted up the snake on a pole in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now, a lot of people think that means Jesus must be exalted, must be uh, put forth, and there's an aspect of that. But in this context, in this sense, Jesus is, is basically saying, I'm going to be lifted up like the snake was on the pole. I'm going to be lifted up on a cross. That whoever believes in me is going to be cured of this poison called sin, just like those people were cured by looking at the bronze snake. Jesus Christ, when we look at him and when we look alone to him by faith, we receive salvation and our sin is covered, our sin is paid for. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says, there is no other name given among men by which you and I can be saved. No other name. John 14, 6, Jesus makes it very clear. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now I just want you to think about some comparisons between <clears throat> this event in the wilderness with Moses and the bronze serpent and Jesus. The problem then was the people's sin, grumbling in gratitude toward God and not giving God his rightful place as Lord, boss. Problem now, people's sin, in gratitude toward God and not giving God his rightful place. Romans 3.23, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every time you sin, you're not giving God his rightful place. Okay? Problem then, God's judgment then was death by snake bite. God's judgment now is physical and spiritual death. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But God's judgment then, then death by snake bite, now we die physically. Adam and, Adam and Eve were cursed, physical death. Uh, we die spiritually, separated from God. God's gracious provision then was having a bronze snake made and lifted up on a pole. And that snake on the pole represented sin that was already judged. God's gracious provision now. Jesus' death on a cross represents sin already judged. So what was God's requirement then? Simple. Just look at the serpent on the pole. God's requirement then, repentance and a simple act of faith in his provision. Looking at the serpent on the pole. And they were delivered from the effects of the poison. God's requirement now, repentance, turning from your sin, and a simple act of faith in Jesus' once for all sacrifice, God's provision, believing in Jesus Christ and deliverance from the poison of sin. And just a simple act of faith, because Ephesians says, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift. You don't work for a gift. It's a gift of God so that no one can stand before God and boast and others and say, look what I did to get my way to get into heaven. You can't make it on your own. You can't be obedient enough and good enough to get to heaven on your own. It's purely by the grace of God and a simple act of putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Looking to Jesus on the cross. The result then is that that symbol 
that snake, which symbolized to the people death, the snakes were a symbol of death, became the hope of life. And they were delivered from physical death. They were cured. Result now. A symbol of death, the cross was a symbol of death. You know, pick up your cross and carry it. A cross was not a symbol of something that you bore, you carried. A cross was a symbol of death. Because any time that anybody was carrying a cross back in that day, they knew where you were going to your death. But now the symbol of death becomes a symbol of hope in eternal life as we look to it. Jesus Christ was both Son of God and Son of Man. Perfect man, perfect God. The perfect substitute. He didn't have to die for sin because he was sinless. But he could die for our sins. And so he became, as I shared with the children, the bridge between man, sinful man, and holy God. Pretty amazing what God did. Let me read this to you. Sitting majestically atop the highest hill in Toledo, Spain, is the Alcazar. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's a 16th century fortress. In the Civil War of the 1930s, the Alcazar became a battleground when the loyalists tried to oust the nationalists who held the fortress. During one dramatic episode of the war, the nationalist leader received a phone call while in his office at the Alcazar. It was from his son who had been captured by the loyalists. The ultimatum, if the father didn't surrender the Alcazar to them, they would kill his son. The father weighed his options. After a pause and with a heavy heart, he said to his son, then die like a man. Harsh? Perhaps. Tragic, yes. But in this commander's view, the life of one person, even his own son, was worth the sacrifice if it saved the lives of others and kept their cause alive. On the night before Jesus died, he prayed to his father, asking if there was any way to avoid the agony of the cross. But there was no other way. In order to defeat the enemy and preserve the lives of all who would someday come into his kingdom, the son had to die. Jesus was God's sacrificial lamb who gave his life for others. So what's our response? 15, verse 15. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Our response should be that we acknowledge our total helplessness. I mean, if the most religious guy in Israel wasn't good enough and had to be born again, had to experience some kind of a new spiritual birth, what does that say about you and me, folks? If the most sincerely devoted man at that time in history couldn't make it. What does that say about you and me? And by the way, that deals with another issue that you have probably wrestled with. I think any thinking, feeling Christian wrestles with the idea, well, what about all these other devoted people? Oh, these Muslims are devoted to Allah, to their God. And they pray so many times a day. And, and, and there's very devoted Jews and, and very devoted people here and people there. And Ah, what about these people that are so nice and devoted people? You ever wondered about that? Does that bother you? Well, if they can make it into heaven, why be a Christian? What does Jesus have to give us in that case? If somebody asked you, what has Jesus done for you? What does Jesus do for you? Well, he saved me. 
Saved you from what? Well, he saved me from sin. So there's something about what Jesus did that dealt with the poison of sin that Jesus and Jesus alone did. So as hard as it is for you and I to think about if Nicodemus in all of his devotion and religiosity couldn't make it to heaven by that kind of religious devotion, nobody else can either. You have to be born again. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Now, by the way, belief in Christ is essential. Jesus, Nicodemus said, Lord, we believe you come from God because nobody could do the miracles except God were with him. That belief still wasn't good enough. So you can believe in the miracles and that Jesus did the miracles, the miracles from God, but that still wasn't good enough, right? Saving faith, true belief has to go beyond belief about Jesus, that he lived and he did the things that he did. It has to go beyond that to belief in the fact that um, he is the Son of God, the Savior, and your Savior and my Savior. See the progression there? I believe about Jesus, the things he did, that he lived and all that. Uh, I believe that Jesus was a sign performer, a miracle guy. Still not good enough. I believe that Jesus Christ was a Savior, and I believe that He is my Savior. My Savior. That's true saving faith. The good news about this, I think it's good news, is apparently Nicodemus uh, must have later experienced the new birth. Because um, he came to help Joseph of Arimathea bury the body of Jesus. So evidently he became a follower of Jesus Christ. Evidently he realized that he wasn't good enough and he humbled himself, admitted his spiritual bankruptcy and put his faith in Jesus and trusted Jesus and Jesus alone for his salvation. That was the good news. You know, the bad news today is that there are many people who claim to be born again. You know, that whole term, being born again, that came about, not, by the way, it got popular back in 1976. Some of you are old enough to remember Jimmy Carter running for president and told people that he was a born-again Christian. That was kind of a big deal, a new thing. Well, since that time, this idea about born again has been watered down. And anytime you're talking about some improvement or renovation, you know, it's, it's born again. It's become such a kind of a trite phrase. And the, the problem and the bad news today is there are so many people that claim this idea about being born again, but according to um, statistics and whatnot, they're not a whole lot different than anybody else in terms of their lifestyle, in terms of their marriages, and so forth and so on. But you know, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if we trust Christ, we become a new creature. There is a radical transformation Matthew 7.21, Jesus says, um, you come to me and you call me Lord, Lord. And many will come to me on that final day of judgment and say, Lord, Lord, they're calling Jesus Lord. Did we not do miracles in your name? How long has it been since you did a miracle? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do all of these great spiritual pyrotechnics in your name, Jesus? And Jesus looks at them and says, I never knew you. Apparently, they were never born again. That, that's going to be a shocker someday, for some folks anyway. 
Well, I guess what, I, what I'm trying to say is this, if any text in the Bible, this text says you can be the most religious person in this room, but you still need to be spiritually reborn. Your mother and your father may be the most devoted religious people you know, but your mother and father can't save you. You're not going to get to heaven on their coattails. You must be born again. So what about you this morning? Have you looked to Jesus with a saving kind of a faith? Have you looked to the cross and said, Lord, I am helpless. I've tried my best and my best isn't good enough. All I can do is throw myself at your mercy at the cross and say, Jesus, I need you. I receive you as my Savior. Look to Jesus this morning if you haven't. Let's pray. And I'm going to go ahead and pray a prayer that I would pray if I've never trusted Jesus and if I want to be born again. And if this is your desire in your heart, then you can pray along with me. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, it's a mystery. It's hard to understand some of these things. But it sure seems like Jesus made it clear to a very religious person that religion isn't enough. We need a new birth. So Heavenly Father, we thank You for sending Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. I can't pay. I can't be good enough to pay for my sins. But I trust Jesus. Death on the cross has paid for my sins. And I thank You for that. And I trust Him. Lord Jesus, I receive You as my Savior and as my Lord. In my own imperfect way, I give You everything that I can do, everything that I am. Because You've said that to all who receive You, to those who believe in Your name, You'll give the right to be children of God. And I thank You for salvation that comes through Him. And by faith, I receive that and I thank you for my salvation, for my paid for sins, for the hope of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.